are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been studying love. Paul doesn't really give a definition of love so much as he gives a description of love. He's right. He's been describing what love is and what love is not. But as fun and easy as that is to preach uh, these last several sermons, uh, uh, the uh, easy part kind of is over because we've got to get back to the context, which is how love plays with the gifts of the church and do certain gifts continue, which is some of the things we want to look at today. In fact, I, it, we, there's a sense in which there's two things we're covering. The preeminence of love, the continuation of love. It, love is the goal. But we also will begin to look more, more a little bit more detail. Uh, do, do tongues cease? Or will they cease in Paul's day? Have they ceased in our day? That's the more difficult thing that uh, not all agree on fully, but I think that we can come to some pretty basic conclusions that most people that we would consider to be sound would agree with, even if you believe that they continue. So we'll get into some of that as we go along. Uh, Last week we uh, finished up our description of love. We saw that love protects uh, the object. Love assumes the best and trusts the object. Again, we're talking about not in a universal uh, love doesn't protect and Trust all things, but in relation to its object, love works hard because it believes the promises of God, and love will endure to the end because love, after all, is the goal. We are to love. That is the attribute of Christ that most exhibits uh, Christ-likeness, and we uh, that is what all the gifts are there for, that we might learn to love both Christ and our neighbor as we sh- should. So, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul sets out uh, the superiority or character, as someone put it, the character, uh, the superiority of character to charisma. Now, when I use the word charisma, we need to understand what that means, because the problem when we hear charisma mostly, it speaks to somebody who has charisma that is likable, Right? You got winsome and whatever. But in the Greek, the word charisma, or the word that comes, the, the, the root word for charisma, basically just means a gift. A free gift, which is a little bit of a redundancy. But sometimes you have to say that because there are those who believe that the free gift of God is something that we must work for. But it means gift. So it's where we get the word grace, for instance. Grace, all grace means is it's, it's a gift. God is, uh, salvation is a gift. From God, he's done all the work, right? But it also is where we get the word charisma or uh, gifts. The the gifts that we're dealing with, the charismatics are those who are people of the gifts. They emphasize the gifts. So you see the relationship to this word. And so Paul is is reminding us of the the character, uh, the superiority of the character over the charisma. In other words, the gifts are there to... Give us the character of love. The gifts are not there to be the emphasis. Love is the emphasis. And this is extremely important because no matter what side of some of these, the continuation of gifts you might fall upon, what we unfortunately have seen historically is that those who are charismatic emphasize gifts over the other things that are a little bit more important. And so uh, there's that to, to consider. And so in verses 1 through 3, Paul has stated that even the most highly prized gifts exercised to the ultimate level of success, but done so without love, really have little value towards the one exercising the gift or those he is exercising the gift towards. In verses 4 through 7, Paul has described love in such a way that defines it in very practical terms, as we have been dealing with over the last four, three or four messages. But he has also shown, in contrast, then, the the lack of love by the Corinthians. And then now, in verses 8 through 13, Paul will add his final and finishing touches to this chapter, which we know that in the original there's no chapter, but in this section, that love never fails. Spiritual gifts will eventually pass away and will no longer be needed, but, of course, love will always be. So, will always be there, will be is eternal in a sense. So if, why would we emphasize 
the temporal over the eternal. And so while the first seven verses of this chapter uh, are the most convicting parts, I think, uh, of this chapter, and the easiest to preach, we now come to what, as I said before, is a little bit more difficult to grasp. Part of the problem is, is that there is disagreement on whether this passage teaches plainly that tongues have ceased or not. Now, I would hold the view that this passage does not teach plainly that tongues have ceased. We'll, we'll talk here in a moment about though, what, why people, some people believe it does. I think most people, uh, at least non-charismatics, would say it does not plainly teach it. Now, you know I've already taken the, made the position that I, I believe tongues have, by and large, ceased. But I don't believe this passage can be go can go, be gone to as a proof text to that end. It might deal with that issue to some degree, but just to, to make that plain. But that's the whole problem here. This it's not a passage that is easy to understand. So while we will address these issues, even those that disagree on some of these points uh, agree that um, this passage probably isn't a, a, a proof text that settles the issue. And we don't want to get sidetracked on tongues and miss, of course, the overall point of the importance of love anyway. So that's why I try to always keep that before so we don't get so sidetracked on love. Because if you get sidetracked on the overall context, you will invariably come to some wrong conclusions. That's just the way the Bible works. And so on one level, it's pretty simple. Love will endure throughout eternity. Again, as we read verse 8, which is what we'll primarily be talking about today, love will never ends. For as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So he uses three prominent gifts and say that at the end of the day, they're all passing away. But the problem is, does he mean they are going to pass away immediately? Or soon, or will they be passed away later on at some other point? See, that's, that's where the uh, problems come. <clears throat> From the one level, that we can at least agree on that. That all the gifts at some point will no longer be needed. And we will continue on in love in the eternal state. Some see verse 13 as faith and hope abiding eternally with love. And I kind of just throw this out of because uh, here Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, that is, are, are abiding, these three, but the greatest of these are love. It, it is, I think, historically been understood that what Paul says there is that right now we live with in faith and hope. Because faith is, is the evidence of things not seen. Hope is to uh, the things future to us, right? We Because we don't live in the eternal state, we still have to live with faith and hope, but that at the, that, that will end when Christ comes back and we will no longer need them. And I believe that's really the truth, that, that's the best way to understand it. There are some who say, well, it, Paul doesn't actually say that hope and faith are going to pass away, and that, that in the eternal state we'll still have faith, that we'll still believe in God, and we'll still have hope because we'll still be, have the hope that things will continue as he said. And I think that while there's a sense maybe in which that's true, uh, the biblical definition of faith, as we as we know in Hebrews uh, 11.1, 1, for instance, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblically speaking, faith and hope are in things not seen, that, that we believe what God says about things and that things will turn out the way he says but we, that's as much as we can do because we don't live in the reality of it yet. In glory, we will live in the reality. So I think, biblically speaking, faith and hope no longer will be exercised. Because we don't want to trust the Lord for anything because he, we will be enjoying it. We'll be living in the essence of it. So, a small point, I wouldn't sit there and argue with someone too much over that. But just so you know that there are uh, some who would kind of go that direction with verse 13. <clears throat> And so Paul is saying, among other things, that something is wrong in our thinking if we get so messed up over gifts that we fail to live by love, right? I mean, that at least we can agree on that. 
Love after all is how we most reflect God's nature and do his will on earth, right? Without love, you can't keep the law of God because the law of God hinges on those two things, loving God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself. The gifts are to help us to that end and not to be ends in themselves. And so if I stand up here and speak in in an unknown tongue and don't edify or serve you in some way, then I've really done nothing for the kingdom of God. And Paul will make that point in chapter 14. And it seems that many don't ignore that today, that they that they love to emphasize tongues. But the problem is that if people aren't being edified and built up in the faith in them, then you really haven't, what are you accomplishing? <clears throat> and so in the meantime, until the Lord comes back and glorifies us, in our present sinful state, we need helps to serve the Lord. These gifts are temporary, obviously, since you will not need someone to stand up here and teach and remind you of truth and glory because we will know even as we are known, right? We will understand the word of God. We will understand everything that we don't understand now. We won't be taught anything, certainly not by preachers in that that sense. So that's why gifts can only be temporary. Even if the gifts, and some of the gifts obviously continue to the end of the age, at the best, are temporary. And of course, being concerned with temporal and physical things have always plagued the church. I wanted to read something that John MacArthur said that I thought was good concerning this, because this has been the Corinthians' problem, as we've talked about, that they have gotten so caught up in the use of gifts that they have forgotten uh, godliness, and they have forgotten what the gifts are for. And so, uh, John MacArthur makes a, a good st- statement here. Many of the Corinthians continually had their eyes on the wrong things. They were overly concerned about the temporary and little concerned with the permanent. Instead of God's salt, of being God's salt in Corinth, they were being flavored by the culture around them. Instead of penetrating Corinth with a spirit of godliness, Corinth's spirit of ungodliness had penetrated the church. Instead of being obedient to God's spirit and controlled by the fruit he gives, They were infected by materialism, pride, antagonism, selfishness, compromise, indulgence, hatred, sexual immorality, jealousy, and virtually every other sin imaginable. They they were called to be light, but they did deeds of darkness. They were called to be righteous, but lived in sin. Instead of Corinth being Christianized, the church was being paganized. And I, and I just I thought that was, that said it well because that is the most practical and the primary thing that we must understand in all this. That whatever our take on the gifts are, the fruit of the Spirit, that is the purpose of gifts, is as Galatians said, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, and so forth. And so if if our gifts aren't getting us there, then, what, then we are misusing gifts. So even if every gift, the, the things that I call sign gifts, the tongues and miracles and healings, even if they are still for today, if they aren't making us holy and exalting Christ, then they can't possibly be, be used in the proper way. <clears throat> and so in verse 8, as we come to that, we want to begin here in verse 8. It says that love never ends. Uh, the KJV says, faileth. The word literally means in the Greek to to fall, and, and so uh, some other places where the word has been used is like in the when that man fell out of the window when Paul preached so long and he fell asleep and he it says he fell to his death. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were said to to have fallen dead when the Lord struck them dead. Uh, Paul or yeah Paul employed this term when he spoke of the twenty. 3,000 in the wilderness who fell dead because of their immorality. So it means to fall. And it's used, obviously, a lot of times to fall in a sense of judgment. And so, uh, it's not saying that love dies, of course, but that love does not come to an end. It does not fall away. Some tend to think that love is some kind of magical key that we can use to unlock every opportunity, to, to guarantee every endeavor. In, in this life, though, love does not always win. If that were the case, all of our loved ones would end up saved. Our children would be converted. 
you know, Jesus was the epitome of love, right? And what happened uh, in his ministry, most rejected what he had to say. So, so love alone does not guarantee that that success. And we might look at it from a, the other side as well, in keeping with the previous seven verses. Whenever we are su- successful, though, love will always be part of the equation. In other words, if we're going to tr- properly serve the Lord and glorify Him, it's got to be through love, which is kind of what the first three verses said there in chapter 13. Our love will not overpower human will, and we can't guarantee that we will always accomplish our purpose, no matter how loving we might be, because success will not always be a part of love, but love will always be a part of spiritual success. So love always is is needed. It always accomplishes what it, it should accomplish, no matter what it might look like on the outside. Love always gets the job done, because it, 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 whatever we do, it causes us to please the Lord. We are glorifying the Lord because we're doing it the proper way. And so we might love our neighbor and witness to them and they reject it. And we love them. We've, we've done everything right. And we have served the Lord well and we've uh, done right by him. But that doesn't mean that that person won't get saved. So anytime we think that we're doing things biblically, um, it's going to be uh, ensure that our goals are going to be met both in... Let me rephrase that. Anytime we think that doing things biblically is going to ensure that our goals will be met in this life, we know that that will often end in disappointment. If we define success as being godlike and in his will, then that's another story. In other words, love will always accomplish that. If we serve each other in love, we will always please the Lord. We'll always be doing right, no matter what it accomplishes, no matter what it looks like in the flesh, whatever the results might be. And that's, I think, important for us to understand. That's why love will always be part of any kind of successful ministry. But this isn't about love failing or not. It's about whether love ends or not. Will, will love ever come to an end or not? And of course we know the answer is no. So the idea here is that love will continue even after these other things are no longer needed or cease to be. Which if you think about it is a glorious thought. It means then that there will be a time when I will know everything I need to know. I don't need to be taught anymore. That I have all knowledge. Um you know, so it just reminds us a better day is coming. A day when we don't need to have church services, right? In that sense. Uh, in the sense for, for edification. <clears throat> so as we've alluded to before, love endures because it is an, an attribute of God. Even faith and hope will have to end because once the, that which is perfect comes, that which when we have everything that we need, uh, we won't need gifts. We will be able to exercise love in a perfect way. Now, that's the easy part. Where it says, verse 8, love never ends. It's not difficult to understand by and large. That's the easy part. But now we come to where the problem occurs in the latter part of verse 8. Because clearly these three gifts are being contrasted to the permanence of love. And all three, it says, will cease at some point. The main controversy comes is when will that cessation happen? Part of the problem is that the verb for tongues ceasing is in a different voice than the other two. In other words, if you read this, it, it, it has an interesting and perhaps a, a, a something that we are to notice, but there's an interesting difference here, right? Tongues, um, excuse me, prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease, different word different tense, um, and then knowledge will pass away. So uh, prophecies and knowledge have a, a, are, are spoken of the same way. Tongues are spoken of a little bit different way, and some look at that and say, hey, that lets us know that uh, we are to look at tongues differently. And it might be. But the problem is, it's an inference. It's not very plain, and, and we have to be careful about trying to make very dogmatic statements over something that really is difficult to understand 
the difference. Since tongue is the middle voice and the other two are passive, some see this as a clear indication that tongues are to be um, seen as having a built-in stopping point. The, the middle voice in Greek basically has the idea of you doing something to yourself. Passive is that something else does something to you. Something on the outside does something to you. And so some say, well, see, that shows that tongues has a built-in stopping point at some point. Maybe. But, but you just, it's just, you can't be very dogmatic about that. Some see this change of voices important and others don't see it as significant. They would also point out that the gift of tongues isn't repeated down in verse 9. In other words, this is the last time you read about tongues in this chapter. And so that shows that it's going to end sooner as well. Well, again, it's a nice inference, but it's hard to be dogmatic. If that's the best you can do to support your view, you probably have, I would say you've got issues, but I think there's other reasons that I'll list in a moment as to why I believe tongues has passed away for the most part, not using this particular verse. So the stance, though, is that the perfect, which um, the, the, the stance that most people take is that when it says that when that which is perfect is come is the eternal state. When Christ comes back, we will no longer need these gifts in the, in the, at that time. And I believe that's the proper way to uh, to understand it. Um, some believe that something else is going to trigger this, the cessation of tongues. And they look at that which is perfect as being the full revelation, the canon. When, when, when the canon was completed by the end of the first century, uh, then we no longer need tongues. Again, I believe that's a truism. I believe that that's one reason why we no longer need tongues. But I don't believe you can use this verse because I don't believe you can say that that which is perfect coming is the Bible. It, because think about verse 12. For now we see in a, in a uh, mirror dimly, then face to face. So he's saying that if this is the Bible, the, full, the, the end of the canon, by the end of the first century, that we have the completed Bible, at that point he says, I will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Well, we all know that just because we have the finished revelation now, I cannot say that I know fully and I know as I am fully known. And we know, of course, over in 1 John 3, that, that, that we will be fully known when we see Christ, right? When we stand before him in glory, then we will know as we are known. And so I think that you, we cannot use verse 8 to, to say that, um, uh, excuse me, verse 9, where he says, now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul's not referring to when the finished canon is done, we will no longer need these gifts, even though that might to some degree be true, because it doesn't work, it doesn't fit into the context. You, you cannot, it's got to be the final state. When Christ comes back and makes everything new, that's the, that's the, uh, what he's referring to, uh, here of that when that which is perfect has come. And yet just to read verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways. And I think what he's referring to is that right now we need gifts. Right now our, 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 our knowledge is, is, is partial. And so we're fumbling around as a child in a sense of, you know, there's a lot of children run around and teenagers who run around and they think they know a lot. But we kind of, you know, if you get older, you got a little bit of age on, you realize they don't know what they think they know, right? And so they make a lot of mistakes. They do silly things because they're kids. But when you become an adult, you, you put away that stuff. And so I think, again, the context is there's a day coming when we can put away the gifts because we're not going to need them anymore, because we're going to be adults in that sense, in a, in a spiritual sense. We'll be in a glorified state. And so I think that's the idea here. Of this, uh, this last section of chapter 13. And so as I said, something that the finished canon is the perfection, but there's just too many problems with that. If, if they were right, it'd be easy to, to say, okay, that means tongues is done, we don't need it anymore, and we can just go on, but 
unfortunately, it's, it's not that easy. And so I think we have to be a little bit more honest about this when we study it, that there's got to be other things going on here that we have to be able to prove our position in, in, in another place. And that's what I hope to do. Um, even a strict cessationist like John MacArthur sees the perfection of verse 10 as the eternal state. So it's it's not like uh, you you got a big divide. I think most people... Uh, understand it to be that there are, are a few who who think it's the completed canon, but they're in the minority. Um, keep in mind that his main point is the importance of love, and don't let all the other stuff distract you from that. And, and just so you know where we're going, what my view will be as we go into chapter 14, which is much more difficult in some ways than even chapter 13. My point, my my view is that while it is possible that this passage is pointing out that tongues might end sooner than the other twos, it's certainly possible, there are other reasons why I believe that tongues are no longer to be the norm, and I don't have to rely on this passage to prove that, and I'll begin here, my, as the rest of the sermon will be giving you the reasons why I believe tongues have passed away, and I won't be using this text. Because I don't believe you can. I also, just to clarify, and we'll, and we'll deal with some of this more in chapter 14, my position also is that it's, it might be the case where tongues and miracles and healings are seen now and then, even in this age. I, I don't know that you can dogmatically say that it's, none of that will absolutely be seen after the complete, completed canon. I just think that's a hard statement. There's no place in the Bible that it just states that plainly. So it's possible, perhaps, under certain conditions that I'll get into, where we might see tongues in this age. But it'll always be biblically. It has to be done biblically, or it can be dismissed out of hand, right? And I think, and I'll try to show that while it's possible, it is not needed, and it would be very rare, and intentionally so. So. That's kind of where I'm coming from this. I'm not going to sit here and say that, that tongues have ceased and that's, you never, every, anytime you ever hear about it, it's definitely wrong. But I'm very guarded in that. And interestingly, some of you might know, you know, Don Carson, for instance, does not refer to himself as cessationist. He believes that the, that the gifts of tongues are something that still continues today. But, and I've, and I've, 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 I've read, I just got through reading through his book on this again. He, does not see it as something that belongs in the church service. He would see it as something that is very private, and I would disagree with him, but his position is safe. His, he understands that there's a big problem when you bring tongues and prophecies and things into the church service. Now, you've opened up a whole other can of worms. So, there are those who can hold to these things continually, and, and, uh, but understanding that that doesn't mean that the church has to be brought into it. The church services have to be brought into it. So I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of background and some things to think about as we continue through these uh, next couple of chapters. All right, first of all then, uh, I believe tongues and miracles are used, and these are why I believe they no longer are to be the norm today, right? Tongues and miracles are used as indications of great change in Scripture, and I've referred to this before, right? But just to, as a reminder to ourselves that when we look at Scripture, there are some very definite things we notice about tongues and miracles. Um, <clears throat> they helped establish the kingdom of, uh, or, or the coming of Christianity at Pentecost, including the fulfill, uh, filling in Revelation that the full canon had completed. In other words, they helped in the beginning, they were needed to primarily let people know that the new covenant has come, that the Holy Spirit has been given, and we now live in a different age. That was their primary focus. We'll look at some verses here in a moment. Clearly, they could have been used uh, with an incompleted canon to help people who didn't have the word at that time. It's possible. But that was never... The main purpose while they were given in, in the Old Testament is very clear about that. And we have talked about this a little bit already. And I'm speaking here primarily of miracles, healings, and tongues. 
There are only three periods in history in which human beings were ever given the gift of performing miracles, for instance. And we've talked about this. Moses and Joshua, that heir. Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus and the apostles. There's no time where miracles were the norm and were given in any number except during those uh, three periods. It's interesting that some have pointed out that each of those periods lasted about 70 years, which I think is interesting. Now, it doesn't mean that God didn't and doesn't step outside natural laws at his discretion and give man the ability to perform miracles. I'm not saying that miracles never appear except for those three periods of time, or tongues, or healings. And of course, we know that God heals people, but we're talking about a faith healer or someone who can't heal by touching. But those are that's, that's what we see historically. Now, let me go to the verse that we read here earlier, in Hebrew, it's down here, excuse me, uh, and show you how that fits into all this. Notice the context. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Talking about Christ coming and doing his work. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard it. While God also... So so you've got, first of all, the Lord uh, Jesus coming and proclaiming who he was, and the Father uh, calling out from heaven, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. God has attested to it. And then it was attested by us who heard him. So then the uh, apostles uh, were uh, commissioned to be witnesses of Christ. While God also bore witness by another testimony, a third testimony you might say, signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, as Paul refers to in chapter 12. So what is he saying here? Well, God has attested to Christ as being the true Messiah and the only salvation through his own words, through the words of his prophets, and just for extra added proof, he allowed his uh, his uh, apostles to perform miracles. They, they bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles. But notice, all this is past tense. It's not an ongoing thing. There was a great change that took place at Pentecost after the work of Christ was done. And so uh, th- there was a, a time where God allowed these proofs to be seen. But once it became obvious what had happened, they, they no longer were needed. And, and he speaks in a past tense, which I think is something that uh, is very in, in, important to understand. He's writing this thing in, in around 67, 68 A.D. perhaps. Um, and it's past tense. Um, then, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, notice here, the signs of a true apostle were performed, past tense, among you with utter patience and signs and wonders and mighty works. These were signs of a true apostle that, that let people know that I am an official witness, Christ has commissioned me, and if you don't, if you're not sure, I'm going to raise someone from the dead. I'm, I'm going to heal somebody as Jesus did. I'm going to do a miracle that, is, that cannot be refuted. Not a psychosomatic nonsense that nobody really knows what's happened. Not, not building up someone's adrenaline so they'll stand up out of a wheelchair for a few minutes and then collapse and be no different than they were before. Real miracles. And, and it was tongues. It was things that, that, that people could see that were miraculous. And so there's that. That is that, that the primary purpose of tongues and these sign gifts were to uh, establish that a great change had taken place. We live in a new age. Secondly, we've already pointed out that tongues were said to be primarily a sign of Israel's judgment. In chapter 14, verses 21 through 22, Paul makes the point, we'll get to this later too, that um, the sign, that the, the tongues were given initially, he quotes from Isaiah, or from the Old Testament, that when the Jews who had rejected God hears a language not their own, they'll know that judgment has come upon them. And that's exactly what happened in Pentecost. When they heard these tongues, while the Lord uses that, obviously, to build the church, 
It was also a sign to the unbelieving, because Paul goes on there in chapter 14 to say that tongues are for unbelievers, not for believers. It doesn't mean that believers don't speak in tongues. It doesn't mean that believers can't and didn't, uh, couldn't be encouraged with tongues. But the purpose was for the unbeliever to know that judgment had come upon them. They refused to listen to God when he spoke plainly to them. So the day would come when they would hear confused voices. They would hear language they didn't understand. And it was a judgment against them for not listening to the plain word of God when the prophets came. And so that was that's tongue's main purpose. And it would be reasonable that eventually it wasn't needed anymore. To, even if it could edify believers to some point, because tongues, tongues could never be the best way to communicate the gospel anyway, but it would be reasonable to assume that once it was obvious that the old economy was over, like say 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and so forth, that it, people eventually caught on and realized, no, we're, we live in a different age. In about five years when Paul wrote this, the temple was going to be destroyed, and it was going to be impossible for Judaism to be practiced anyway. But what is Judaism today is not the Judaism of the Old Testament, because you, you don't have any blood sacrifices, and you don't have any priesthood doing it, right? So whatever they're doing today is, is just a makeshift religion that they've come up with, because they didn't know what else to do once the temple was destroyed. <clears throat> and so we no longer need the sign of tongues, and the Jews don't need the sign of tongues because their judgment is painfully obvious after 70 AD. Christ has moved on to the new kingdom, the new covenant kingdom. There is no reason to assume that this sign is going to continue throughout the entire church age because there's a, it's a sense in which it would be redundant. It, it's a sign to keep letting us know that judgment has come, that, that change has taken place. Well, after 2,000 years, I think we all kind of know that. Neither is it needed to verify the gift of the Holy Spirit, since that was recorded very carefully and very systematically in the book of Acts. We don't need tongues to let us know that when a Christian, when someone gets saved, they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's the only reason tongues are even seen, uh, in the book of Acts, to let people know that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit has come upon believers. Alright, so that's the second reason. Thirdly, they are no longer needed because they are an inferior means of edification to start with. I want to read a few verses in chapter 14 where Paul makes the same point. Chapter 14, verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, and we'll explain why he would say that. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. His point there, obviously, is that at the end of the day, what's important is that the church is edified, and uh, the use of tongues without an interpreter doesn't do that. And, uh, then notice verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, who one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So in other words, again, the, the problem with tongues is that they don't edify because people don't understand what's being said. So that they, they're uh, inferior to the preaching, the plain preaching. And then lastly, look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself, and to God. So even at a time in which clearly the gift was still being exercised, notice a couple of things here. First of all, he says, uh, only two or three. That's, you don't need to spend all service doing this because it's not the primary purpose. It's not as important as the preaching. So it can be done. If the Spirit does it, okay, two or three. But what does that tell us? That it's something that you could control. That someone didn't just automatically get filled with the Holy Spirit and they could uncontrollably started preaching or talking in tongues. Paul says that, look, if ten of you have received the gift, two or three of the rest of you keep quiet. You have control over this gift, which again separates it completely from what's going on today. So I think that's a, 
extremely interesting thing as well. And so tongues were never seen as a primary means to teach or to evangelize. I think it's worth mentioning that uh, in all likelihood, tongues were never meant to evangelize. You say, what about Acts 2? And they came and the, the apostles were speaking in tongues and people were being saved. Well, if you go back and read it, it says that what the people heard was the apostles glorifying God when they spoke in tongues. They were praising God, and that in turn caused them to ask, what's going on? And then Peter, in their language, starts to preach to them and explain the gospel to them. And they were saved through Peter's preaching. The the tongues were a sign that, that brought interest. They were never meant to edify. They were meant to be a form of praising God, but primarily in a sense that we have already talked about. And so I think that also then adds weight to the fact that they are no longer needed and certainly should not be the norm. Now, I, I, I think I might have already said this, but I, I want to make be clear that while I would then grant the possibility of tongues today, I certainly do not grant the necessity of tongues today, as practiced by some. Not all that is called tongues is biblical tongues. I, I think that it's very difficult if, if, if you could ever find any of the tongues out there today as being biblical. <clears throat> and I say this because th- there is no verse that clearly states that tongues have ceased, as I've already said, so I don't want to take a position that I can't defend the tongues definitely isn't for today, but I think there's some things we can definitely say about tongues. They are not necessary, they are not needed, and they would not be the norm. Fourthly, the completed canon and death of the apostles made a direct made direct revelation from God both unnecessary and impossible. There's a sense in which once the apostles died, there was nothing new coming from God. As we, uh, that, let me just uh, show you here in Hebrews 1. Long ago and in many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and that goes back to our Sunday school class, we are living in the latter days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So now, Jesus has come. He has spoken. The apostles are the official witnesses. They, they were inspired to write down what he has spoken. And that's it. That God has spoken in the Old Testament by the prophets. Now to the Son, which is the full light. Nothing else is needed. Anything else would be lesser light. So there's that that we need to. Only those who are commissioned as witnesses. Uh, were said to have be, uh, wrote the canon down. So either we have the full canon or we don't. And if we don't and we need more revelation, that creates a whole other can of, of worms, uh, problems that we see in every cult. And we've seen in the Roman Catholic Church uh, for uh, 1,500 years or so that what happens when you think that we need more than the Word of God? We don't need sola scriptura, the Word uh, being the final authority we need other things. God speaks in other ways. And all it does is cause confusion and does not lead to life. <clears throat> so tongues today wouldn't be, wouldn't be to reveal anything new that would, that would be of any interest to believers, so we have no real need of them. Fifthly, tongues are mentioned in the earlier books of the uh, New Testament, but strangely absent in the later ones. Again, I offer this as something to think about. Primarily by that I mean Acts and 1 Corinthians. As far as I know, that's the only place that tongues are mentioned. So if tongues are that important, if tongues are a primary proof of someone even being saved or getting the Spirit, then why on earth is there? Uh, are they only mentioned very, very uh, er- briefly early on and that's it? And then finally, I believe... As just as important as all these others is the fact of the Christian experience for 2,000 years. You say, well, Pastor, that's not biblical. That, that's not biblical reason. Well, 
uh, in a sense, it's not maybe biblical in the sense of going to a text, but for 2,000 years, if it's obvious that gifts, the sign gifts, were never part of the of the church that was faithful throughout 2,000 years, you cannot ignore that. Because if it's that important and, and God was not able for the for his church, his people, to uh, understand how to use them and to use them consistently, then I would have to say that in some ways uh, Christ has failed in uh, the church uh, functioning as it should. If tongues were supposed to be part of the local church experience, then by and large we have completely missed it. For, if you think about for the last 2,000 years. And so when we look at the writings of the early church, it's interesting that we find an absence of the mention of tongues. Clement of Rome in 95 AD, when writing to the Corinthian church of the same problems, uh, of some of the problems they had, never mentions tongues. Justin Martyr of the second century, who wrote many volumes and visited many churches, never mentioned tongues uh, even when he lists his spiritual gifts, it never mentions tongues. Origen, who admittedly had, he was a, a bit of a mess theologically, he lived in the third century, he never mentions tongues, and even argues that the sign gifts were temporary for the apostolic age and are not exercised today. So even back then, there, those who, it was a standard view of what I've been teaching. Christendom, or Chrysostom, who would be of the ancient church fathers, one of the better ones, for sure, doctrinally, argued in the 4th century that these sign gifts not only had ceased, but couldn't even be accurately defined, which I think is an interesting and important point to make. Not only did we see that in the 4th century they understood that these things to no longer be needed, but he says even if they are Nobody knows how to how to define them, how to know that it's truly from God and not made up. All the problems that we have today, he understood that. It, it was even back then they understood that. And today there's no consensus of how to define, recognize them, and use them, even to some degree in the charismatic church. And Augustine said the same thing. So there's you have to put a lot of weight on, on these things. In the second century, a, a man named Mantanus, uh, uh, exercised tongues, but he also believed the divine revelation that was continuing and, uh, was considered to be a heretic by, by and large because he had a lot of other problems. So yeah, he practiced tongues, but you've got to give yourself a little bit better example than someone who has completely gone off, like didn't even believe in the finished canon, right? And apparently there was no more real practice of tongues until 1600, the 16 and 1700s. There were, there were always some who tried to, but they were never biblically sound in any way to be taken seriously. And even in the, begin, in the 16, 1700s, when more groups started to do it, they had so many doctrinal problems that it, it was very it would be very difficult to use them as a good example. And, and so I think you can't you can't ignore that. There's there's good reasons why we have to be very wary of tongues and and any of the sign gifts to be something that we are to see today and especially to be the norm. And that's my tongues my stance on tongues miracles and healings as well. Now. Let me just say this and I'll close. Uh, D.A. Carson, for instance, uh, believes in that tongues are, where, where you see tongues is in your private prayer life. And he's not the only one by any stretch. Well, and I disagree with that. I, I think you, I have yet to hear anybody, including him, explain how speaking in tongues in your private prayer life helps you. And I think there's there's some obvious problems with all that but he understands though that while that he he gives that he says he says leave it there don't bring don't bring that in the church don't start telling others uh what god said to you and what they're supposed to do or anything like that leave it private 
And so I, I'll take the same stance. I can't sit here and tell you for sure that tongues never will happen in this age. But if you're, if you feel like you speak in tongues, then at your home, you do what you want to do. And as long as you don't bring it to the church, I don't care. I'll be tolerant of that. Because there's more important things. I don't, I don't want to break fellowship over that. I don't agree with it. But, you know, fine. Do what you want to do. But don't bring it into the church. And I believe, and I know Jeff well enough to know that, uh, he would agree with that. So, the last thing I'll point out here then is that in chapter 13 and verse 10, Paul gives us this example that I, that I read to you about that. When that which is perfect comes, that which is partial will pass away. And I think it teaches an important lesson to the Corinthians and also serves as a general rebuke, not just to them, but to us too, of any pride or arrogance. He kind of is referring to them at, right now. They're acting like children. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're divisive. They're unloving. And he says, as long as you live like that, you're living like children. <clears throat> Their wisdom and understanding is partial. In the light of eternity, such knowledge will be set aside as imperfect. And so, do the Corinthians believe that they see things clearly and that their perception uh, um, of matters is accurate? Well, if you can't live godly in Christ Jesus and exercise the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then you have no reason to believe that. And so, instead of us, you know, being all worried about whether we're practicing tongues or these gifts, are the gifts making you holy? If whatever gifts we have and that we're exercising, if it's producing holiness, then things are good. But if it's producing division and unloving attitudes and pride and all sorts of hate, uh, hurtful things like that, then whatever gifts are being used are not being used properly. And I think that goes a long way in helping us keep ourselves centered on the important things and not getting distracted by the unimportant things. All right. We'll stop there today. Any questions or comments before we close? Yeah. George.